service. Disgraceland is brought to you by Disgraceland All Access. Disgraceland All Access membership is your chance to support the show and get ad-free listening, an exclusive scripted episode every month, and exclusive bonus content every week, plus access to an always-on chat with me and your fellow discos. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership, or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. Disgraceland is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about rock and roll pioneer Jerry Lee Lewis are insane. He smashed people in the face with mic stands. He shot his bass player in the chest with a 357 Magnum. He was born into hellfire and hellbent on assassinating the king. One of these nights, Jerry Lee was going to get past the guards at Graceland and stick Fat Elvis good in his past his prime belly with his new hunting knife, the one that said, King of Rock and Roll. Because fuck Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis was the real king. He was also paranoid and dangerous. He slept behind a door fortified with steel bars and with a loaded pistol under his pillow. He mainlined speed directly into his stomach, so much so that it was like he was doing it for sport instead of pleasure. But Jerry Lee Lewis made great music. The music you were hearing at the top of the show, that wasn't great music. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called Cha-Cha Swinging Flutes MK2. I played you that loop because I can't afford the license for every breath you take by the police. And why would I play you that specific slice of paranoid cheese could I afford it? Because that was the number one song in America on August 24th, 1983. And that was the day that Jerry Lee Lewis, also known as the killer, also known as the man who may or may not have invented rock and roll, became the man who may or may not have gotten away with murdering his fifth wife. On this, our first episode, Cha-Cha Swinging Flutes, Paranoid Cheese, The Killer, and Getting Away With Murder. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. In the South, where Jerry Lee Lewis was born and raised, his first cousin, televangelist Jimmy Swaggart, was more famous than the Beatles. But Jerry Lee was the Holy Ghost. He was larger than life and took zero shit from anyone, especially not from his rock and roll contemporaries. Supposedly, Chuck Berry had once refused to go on before him, so Jerry Lee set his piano ablaze, played through the flames with raw Pentecostal fury, and made an impossible act for Chuck to follow. His live shows were legend, and his raw power was a sight to behold. The way Jerry Lee performed, it hadn't been seen before in popular music or anywhere else. His body rattled and shook with violence and overt sexuality as he bent his 600-pound piano to his will, and his hair flailed wildly while his googly eyes scanned the room for non-believers, of which there were none. Jerry Lee's madman reputation preceded him. Rumors circulated that he was possessed. 
that he had been touched by the devil, that he was a vampire, that he was a vampire who fought for the South in the Civil War. Okay, he wasn't a vampire, but if he was, he'd be the type of vampire who fought for the South, lost, and then never really acknowledged that the North had won. In 1977, the year punk broke, a shit-faced Jerry Lee rammed his Lincoln into the gates at Graceland at 3 a.m., waving a pistol, demanding to see Elvis Presley. When the cops asked him what he was doing, he flatly said, I'm here to assassinate the king. If Elvis was sex incarnate, Jerry Lee was violence incarnate. And Jerry Lee hated Elvis. He thought he was a hack, a thief, and that he couldn't hold a candle to real musical originators like himself or Hank Williams or Al Jolson. When Elvis died and they asked Jerry Lee for a quote, he said, I was glad, man. Just another one out of the way. I mean, Elvis this, Elvis that. What the shit did Elvis do except take dope that I couldn't get a hold of? But Elvis was the king. He wore the crown that Jerry Lee thought was rightfully his. At least it was his before that mess over in England back in the 50s. If you know two things about Jerry Lee Lewis, they are probably these. You know the piano licked to great balls of fire, and you probably also know that he married his 13-year-old cousin, Myra Gale. But when news of Jerry Lee's child bride was made public, it ruined him. He was in England in the late 1950s, at the height of his early rock and roll fame. And in a heartbeat, he went from making 10 grand a night to being kicked out of the country, blacklisted on the radio back home, and stringing together one-nighters for a couple hundred bucks here and there. His reputation never really recovered. But by the early 70s, Jerry Lee did regain his fame and his fortune. He was conquering the charts again, this time as a country singer, with hit after hit after hit. Between 1968 and 1977, Jerry Lee had 17 top 10 hits on the Billboard country charts. This is a hugely popular run. My point, by late 70s, early 80s standards, Jerry Lee Lewis was a star and a household name. And money wasn't a problem anymore. At least if he could keep his newest ex-wife, Jaron, out of his pocket and the IRS off of his back. Jerry Lee was flush again and hiding his money in shoeboxes. But then, in 1981, all of that speed he'd been taking caught up to him and his stomach nearly exploded. The doctors gave him no better than even odds that he'd live. Friends like Johnny Cash and Elizabeth Taylor, they came by the hospital to say their farewells. But miraculously, he got better. And in January of 1982, looking beaten up and worse for wear, he appeared on NBC in a special celebrating 25 years of Jerry Lee. They call me the killer, he told the audience. But the only thing I ever killed in my life was possibly myself. Maybe that was true, but the next two years would be full of death and mayhem. A raid of his house by taxmen turns up cocaine and marijuana. A looming divorce settlement from his fourth wife, Jaron, threatens to bankrupt him yet again. But then, Jaron suddenly turns up dead, face down, in a pool, no witnesses. The official ruling, an accident. Jerry Lee's wife is now gone and so is the expensive divorce settlement that she was seeking. A year after Jaron's death, almost to the day, the killer took bride number five, Sean Michelle Stevens, 
a cocktail waitress from Michigan nearly half his age. On June 7, 1983, on a tree-shaded patio on Jerry Lee's 80-acre estate, the one with the piano-shaped pool out back, they were married. Jerry Lee in a white tux, Sean in a white dress. In pictures shot for the National Enquirer, they look happy. Sean is wearing a $6,000 ring. 77 days later, Sean is dead. The official cause of death, an accident. But unlike Jaren's death, Sean's death attracted some attention. Police reports went missing. The EMTs who found Sean's body at Jerry Lee's house noticed blood under her fingernails. Scrapes on Jerry Lee's hand. Bruises on Sean's body. The nearby Memphis newspaper had rolled over. But in Detroit, near where Sean's parents lived, reporters uncovered a bunch of details that didn't add up. It was starting to look like a cover-up, and not a very good one. And then, there was the matter of the call that Sean made to her mother the night before she died. The one where she told her mom that she was trying to leave Jerry Lee, but that he wouldn't let her. Hey, Discos, it's Jake here. Thank you so much for listening to Disgraceland. Your support truly means a lot to me, and it's because of you that my team and I are able to make this show. If you want more Disgraceland, if you want more regular interactions with me and the community of Disgraceland listeners, or if you simply want to listen to the show ad-free, go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership, or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. For just five bucks a month, you can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. You'll also get weekly unscripted bonus content, special audio collections, and early access to merch and events. There are two ways that you can support the show and become a member at disgracelandpod.com slash membership. You can sign up using Patreon and listen to the show ad-free on Apple, Spotify, and most other major podcast platforms. And Patreon members also get access to all the other perks of membership in an always-on chat where I'll be interacting with you and diving deeper into the world of Disgraceland. But maybe you're currently an Apple Podcast subscription listener and you want to just tap into all the bonus audio content and ad-free listening that we're offering. We're also offering this membership as a premium channel on Apple Podcasts. However you choose to join, all you got to do is go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Support the show for just $5 a month, five bucks, or sign up for an annual plan and get two months free. Come join me and your fellow discos at Disgraceland All Access by visiting disgracelandpod.com slash membership. And to think, just three months earlier, Sean Stevens Lewis was happily married and to a bona fide celebrity to boot. A raging speed freak and alcoholic, but a celebrity nonetheless. Marital bliss soon gave way to the reality of living with a spoiled, narcissistic, drug and alcohol addled rock star who was used to getting his way all of the time and beholden to absolutely nobody. Sean got hip quick. Jerry Lee liked to drink. A lot. Rule number one. Let him. Jerry Lee's stomach hurt. A lot. Rule number two. Get used to him shooting Talwin straight into his belly with that big ugly needle. Jerry Lee liked attention from the ladies. Rule number three. Don't give a fucking inch. 
Jerry Lee was your man. Grab that needy slut by the hair and tell her to fuck right off back to the dirt floor shack her white trash mama failed to do her the favor of miscarrying in and get back to the business of being the one and only Mrs. Jerry Lee fucking Lewis. Jerry Lee was like a needy puppy, and he needed to be reminded of who his woman was. And like most needy men, Jerry Lee was jealous. Really jealous. Even though his eyes wandered and the eyes of women everywhere wandered right back. Not only was Sean determined not to give an inch, she also wasn't afraid to let her man know she was no sucker. Confidentially, a high school crush was back in Michigan, waiting for her should things with Jerry Lee not work out. The killer was not pleased. Once, Sean threatened to leave Jerry Lee. This did not please the killer either. You're my wife, he said. I'll kill you before you leave me. Quickly, Sean had learned that Jerry Lee liked group sex. Why settle for one woman when a romp with two or three would do? Sean was cool, but a swinger she was not, and she wasn't having any of it, especially not with her younger sister, Shelly, as Jerry Lee had been maneuvering. When Shelly batted down Jerry Lee's advances, his reaction was something between petulance and rage. Screaming at Shelly and banging his fist into a counter, he screamed at her, You scared of me? You should be. Why do you think they call me the killer? How'd I get that name, huh? According to Shelly, he then slapped her face. Shortly after this happened, Sean was found dead in her home. For the local EMTs who took the call, there was nothing out of the ordinary about heading over to Jerry Lee's to provide medical assistance to some passed out reveler. It was part of the gig. Finding a dead body, that was something new. The first thing they noticed was the absence of Mr. Lewis. The second thing they noticed was how the body of Mrs. Lewis was situated, or placed neatly on a fully made bed in a guest room, not in her bedroom with her newlywed husband in a guest room. The EMTs checked for vitals while Lottie Jackson, Jerry Lee's caretaker of more than 10 years, knocked on his bedroom door. Within seconds, the killer emerged. The EMTs quickly noticed the bright red scratches on the back of Jerry Lee's hand. You know the kind. They kind of looked like scratches your cat would make, except Jerry Lee didn't own a cat. Blood was also visible on Jerry Lee's robe and on his slippers. There was a pile of bloody clothes in the bathroom, a rivulet of blood on a door, more blood on the carpet, Broken glass was scattered across the floor throughout the house. There was blood on Sean's dead hand, in her hair, on her clothes, and on a bra that was in another room. Dirt all over her body. Bruises on her arms, on her hip. Her fingernails were broken with something that looked a lot like blood underneath them. All of this physical evidence on and around a woman lying dead on top of a neatly made bed that wasn't hers in a guest room in her own home, down the hall from where her newlywed husband slept alone. Stranger than that, the evidence wouldn't even be reported until after the grand jury convened. Is it any wonder that they found no indication of foul play? We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Mrs. Jerry Lee Lewis was dead, 
in a home field advantage grand jury was about to determine that no crime had occurred. How is this possible? Jerry Lee's world was DeSoto County, Mississippi. Elvis had Memphis, up the road a piece. So Jerry Lee had DeSoto. And DeSoto had Jerry Lee right back. He was their very own celebrity. DeSoto County law officials occupied a special place in Jerry Lee's pocket. Jerry Lee was one of their own. Plus, when it counted, Jerry Lee made the appropriate campaign contributions to the appropriate men who made sure that DeSoto County remained an appropriate place to fear God in and to raise your children upright in. When Jerry Lee fucked up, you didn't arrest him. You made sure the mess went away. The night before Sean died, Jerry Lee drove his car off the road and into a ditch. DeSoto County deputies got his car towed, gave him a ride home, and didn't test him for intoxication. The incident wasn't even recorded by the sheriff's department. The county dispatcher, John Crawford, is on record saying, I knew not to log it or nothing. When I heard it was Jerry Lee Lewis, I knew it was just a community service. This was the culture in DeSoto County. And it was in this culture that the investigation took place. And the investigation never really had a chance. When state investigators arrived on the scene the morning Sean was found dead, county officials were already muddling through the house. And the state's investigators reported that Jerry Lee was secluded in his den alone with DeSoto County's Deputy Sheriff Jack McCauley for more than an hour. What were they talking about? Nobody knows for sure, but what we do know is that soon after that conversation, state investigators learned that the decision had already been made by DeSoto County authorities unilaterally to use a private medical examiner instead of a public one. Why? Because this would ensure that all information gathered from the autopsy would now flow back to the county where Jerry Lee's presence loomed large and not to the state, which was beyond the killer's fear of influence. And that any and all sordid details from Sean's death would never be placed in the public record. But the public did get wind of some of the details, thanks to a young funeral director named Danny Phillips. Phillips is on record saying, I'd never say Jerry Lee killed that girl, but I'd like to see it investigated. To me, I just can't believe that that girl just got to that bed and lay down and died. You just can't make me believe it. Phillips was particularly perplexed by his finding of what he thought to be a puncture wound caused by a hypodermic needle on Sean's right arm. The same type of needle found at Jerry Lee's house that day. The official cause of death was fluid from the lungs from methadone. Yet, despite all of this, the private medical examiner quickly declared no foul play, and the body was shipped out of the lab within hours to be embalmed. DeSoto County Sheriff Dink Sowell explained away the crime scene evidence, stating that the blood was caused by Jerry Lee cutting his finger on a glass, but made no mention of the countless shards of broken glass throughout the house, or of the scratches on Jerry Lee's hand, or of the blood under Sean's fingernails. Sean's bruises were quote-unquote superficial. Sal claimed there were no marks of any violence and no indication of anyone being attacked. 
County Attorney Bill Ballard declared it a complete and thorough investigation. But how thorough was it? Lab tests determining whose blood it was weren't yet completed. Nobody seemed to care. The reporting of the evidence had been bungled, badly. It never stood a chance with the grand jury. And forget the physical evidence. Investigators didn't care about anecdotal evidence either. Nobody thought it relevant that three nights earlier, Jerry Lee took two women home for group sex with Sean. At some point, things got scary and the girls were spooked enough to run out of the house and frantically beg the neighbors for a ride out of there. Did Sean try to escape too? A night before her death, she made two calls. The first to her mom, telling her she was thinking of leaving Jerry Lee, but that he wouldn't let her. It was late. Sean's mom thought she was upset and that by morning it would all blow over. They made plans to talk later and hung up. Then Sean made a second call. This one wasn't to family. It was to her hometown sweetheart, Scott's sister. The one Sean made mention of to Jerry Lee to reclaim her sovereignty and the power play between her and the countless women threatening their relationship. She wanted to know if Scott still loved her. She was planning her exit and made plans for Scott's sister to come for her later that month. Then, in mid-sentence, the phone went dead. The fifth Mrs. Lewis was gone, real gone. The cause, like Jerry Lee's previous wife, Jaron, an accident. Was it a mistake? A suicide? Whatever the cause of death, there was no coming back from it. And Jerry Lee needn't worry about the high school sweethearts busting up his hillbilly hamlet or carefully calibrating that unique emotional cocktail he'd been nursing since his days back in Faraday, Louisiana sitting in a Pentecostal pew on a Sunday, in fear of the Holy Ghost. You know the cocktail. An emotional speedball, trading on equal parts self-confidence, God-given talent, fear of your maker, and the shame of being a mere mortal. With Sean's death, shame and jealousy were on the run, and pride was once again creeping up the backstretch. On the day they found Sean dead, while the local cops and state investigators got down to the business of securing the scene and collecting slash not collecting evidence, Jerry Lee decamped 15 miles north at his manager, J.W. Witten's house. By now, reporters were looking for a comment from the killer to run in their evening editions about his newest dead wife. So tragic. How was he able to stand the strain? That sort of thing. But J.W., ever Jerry Lee's keeper, made it clear that the killer would not be able to come to the phone. He was supposedly in shock and heavily sedated. But Jerry Lee would soon find himself well enough to make two very important phone calls within hours of his wife's death. The first to her mother to inform her of Sean's death, though he would instead wind up talking to her sister Denise. And then, shortly after, to his local bar, Hernando's Hideaway, to find out if anyone had any hypodermic needles. Later, a witness from the bar claimed Jerry Lee said, you got any rigs? Goddamn cops, clean me out. A week later, the night after the funeral, Jerry Lee wasted no time. 
He was right back at Hernando's, his favorite bucket of blood, his go-to, his local honky-tonk, where there was always a seat open at the bar for him, and where the spotlight always made him look 10 feet tall and 10% more better looking than Elvis. It was at Hernando's piano, where Jerry Lee made up a little ditty on the spot, and he sang it with two beautiful women on the stool at his side. I told her when she left me, I'd have another in her bed. Right around this time, Jerry Lee spoke to Sean's sister Denise for the last time by telephone. Jerry Lee's speech was slurred. He was on one. Jesus Christ, Jerry Lee, what happened? Denise, sis is dead, and she's a bad girl. What? What do you mean, Jerry? What do you mean? She is a bad girl, and she dead. Chilling, right? All of these details are out there. They've been expertly reported in newspapers and magazines like the Chicago Tribune and Rolling Stone. So, why doesn't America care? Unlike the other cases of celebrity spousal abuse and potential murder, say the O.J. Simpson case, or even the recent celebrity sexual assault cases, in the case of Jerry Lee Lewis, there wasn't even an indictment, never mind a trial. Was it because this was a pre-cable news America? Pre-internet? Or was it because the spotlight in Little DeSoto County didn't burn bright enough despite Jerry Lee's chart-topping success? Or maybe Sean's death was just an accident. Or was it because we don't really care about justice? We care more about our myths. The strange and mysterious death of Mrs. Jerry Lee Lewis, as Rolling Stone put it, it's just so on fucking brand for the killer. Deep down, way down, past all of our self-righteous notions about justice and right and wrong, when it comes right down to it, we want our rock stars to be bad. We want to believe in the myths. From the time they explode out of their mama's womb, standing up and talking back, we take the ride with them. The one where they misbehave their way into our hearts for the entirety of our short, collective pull on this mortal coil. Jerry Lee Lewis is out there, right now, at the time of this recording, at the age of 81, and still performing still knocking them dead and entertaining us both in body on stage and in our minds as the killer. And thank God for it. And the Holy Ghost. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. Disgraceland was created by yours truly and is produced in partnership with Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at disgracelandpod.com. If you're listening as a Disgraceland All Access member, thank you for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. And if not, you can become a member right now by going to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Members can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. Weekly unscripted bonus episodes, special audio collections, and early access to merchandise and events. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership for details. Rate and review the show and follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook at Disgraceland Pod and on YouTube at youtube.com slash at Disgraceland Pod. Rockerola. 
Bye-bye.